This is an ABC podcast. Art is central to the lives of many of us, something we were reminded of during COVID lockdowns and restrictions, when cultural institutions were forced to shut and live performances were cancelled. As well as entertaining and diverting us, the creative arts, theatre, music, visual art and so on, opens our eyes to the experiences and stories of others, helping us to empathise. The arts are also a vehicle for critiquing social and political matters. But did you know engaging with art also has health benefits and is a proven form of therapy for those experiencing mental illness? It can be a vital form of expression and connection as well for those who feel marginalised and oppressed. As you'll hear, though, creating art can take a toll on performers and practitioners and those working in the industry around it. I'm Paul Barclay, and this Big Ideas is asking, can art save us? It was recorded at the Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane as part of the Goma Talks series, and it features Kelly Vincent, a writer, creative director and advocate. She's co-founder of True Ability, a disabled persons theatre company. Jill Bennett, Scientia Professor at the University of New South Wales, researcher and director of the Big Anxiety Festival. Sahara Herald, tour director with Frontier Touring, and Wesley Enoch, playwright and artistic director. So look, all of you work in the arts in one form or another. It's your profession, it's what you do for a living, but I wanted to get a sense on a more personal level about how art touches you and affects you. Jill, I'll start with you first of all. Uh, It's at the forefront of your professional work, art, and I'd like to know, though, firstly, how it plays a role in your personal life, uh, how important art is for you just in terms of dealing with life and living life. Well, hugely important at a personal level. My work has always been at the intersection of art and trauma, and so I suppose it took me a long time to, to realise the potency of art for uh, not just functioning as a diversion or, you know, something that took you away from stresses and strains, but something that could actually do that deep repair work in terms of trauma. So my work has become much more engaged with a sort of the more, what you might call the more serious end of mental health trauma and even suicidality. So I absolutely think it's life-saving, And as an individual, are there moments when you turn to art specifically, when you feel like you need to see live music, to go to the theatre, to attend a gallery yeah, and so on? of course. I mean, I think, you know, it, art's part of the backdrop of our lives and it's how we understand uh, our emotions and our capacity to relate to the world. So... Without art, we'd live in very small worlds with without much sophistication, right? Mm. But um, but I think it, it, even more than that, it, it's more than the art object, the finished object that we go and see. It's about creativity and that capacity for inventiveness and play and, you know, defining ourselves and our future. And I think it's that that really is is the essence of why art is so important, because it doesn't, you know, put a label on us or box us in. It allows us to create something new. And shared experience. I always find experiencing art with others much more rewarding than shutting yourself in and watching it on TV as we've had to do. Kelly, you're a, you're a writer and director and performer and advocate. How important have the arts been in, in your life and, and why is art so important to you? There are many things I don't have words for, but this is certainly one of them that's difficult to express. I think for me, growing up disabled and with undiagnosed autism, Art was really where I found my people. And before that, I didn't know that there were people like me. And I think a lot of us go through that where we assume that, you know, we're the weird kid or the drama kid or whatever. And then you meet other people and there's just this amazing understanding that just happens between you, even though you might come from completely different walks of life and be working on different forms of art and different projects. The understanding of of what that, that means to be 
you know, artistically inclined and a creative person, I think really bonds people together. And I think especially for disabled people, that's a really valuable thing because I can write from bed when I'm having a bad pain day. I've got friends, you know, that create art from hospital and from bed. I work with uh, True Ability, my theatre company that I co-run. And, you know, sometimes these are people that have barely spoken to another person in 10 years. And next thing you know, they're up on the state theatre stage, you know, telling their story. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's something that I think it's, it's difficult to to put into words when you when you experience that. And I think especially for minority communities, art really provides us with a voice that society doesn't give us because we can express ourselves in whatever way works for us, in whatever words are natural for us to use and turn that into art as opposed to having to formalise the way we express ourselves for the benefit of broader society. Mm. One of my biggest beliefs in my work, um, whether that's advocacy or art, is, you know, often people with disabilities or any minority community really get labelled as voiceless. And for me, it's nobody is voiceless. We just haven't learned how to listen to them yet. We haven't given them the right tools and we haven't tuned into that way of expression. So for me, it's it's everything, really. It's It's expression it's identity it's home and safety mm, yeah i do appreciate i'm asking this question but it is a very hard question to actually <laughs> to actually answer uh, wesley you've had some of the big jobs with some of the big arts organizations but can you tell us how theater and performance or perhaps music or whatever affects you do you seek solace from it do you want it to be political do you mm. want it to what are you what are you asking of art for your yeah, for yourself as an individual. I mean, the question by itself says that <clears throat> there's only one purpose for art, where I think there are multiple purposes mm -hmm. all the time. It, 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 art can mark time for us. It can mark space. It can mark relationships. And often we think about art as something that is specialised and we have to go visit, mm -hmm. when in fact we're living it all the time, from the choice of what clothing we wear to the photographs to the music where, where we have at home. All of these things are around us. And, and I think that, for me, I actually ask art to play a role in changing people's minds, mm. to, to introduce new ideas and to spark curiosity. And I think that in this day and age too, we're often feeling that if something is new, if something creates discomfort, that it sometimes has a negative connotation, that it's wrong. When I think that art by its very nature introduces us to something new, creates a discomfort, and our curiosity then is sparked to go in and investigate what that means. Mm. That art is one of those voices that you don't hear very, oh, you're right, sorry. <laughs> I got all excited then. You did, I <laughs> um, But that whole idea that art is something that, that the voices that you don't hear regularly yeah. can spark you into another way of looking at the world. And I think that that's what I want art to be. Many people think of art as something that placates them and mm -hmm. entertains them and maybe distracts them from life. But I actually think the best art does both, mm -hmm. can entertain you and engage you, but also take you somewhere else mm -hmm. and can take you into a way of thinking about the world that you didn't think of before. So for me, art, you know, from a First Nations perspective, is not, we, we should actually talk about culture more often than yeah. we talk about art, because I think that art is the detritus of a cultural process. That okay. art is this product at the end that we in fact should discard, because it's the making of the art and the engagement of the making of the art, which is deeply cultural that everyone should be involved in. Very well put, I have to say. I, I'm kind of going to use those terms a bit interchangeably, but that's a really good description, Wesley. Uh, well done. We know why you're on the panel now. Uh, <laughs> Sahara, you're a person who has been a lover of music, something I can relate to as well. You know, you started going to see bands when you were, when you were young and now you're doing it for a living. Uh, how important has music been in, in your life? And... Uh, you know, what was the point at which you decided that this thing that was a passion would become a job for you? For me particularly, and I've related to what the uh, others have shared, as a teenager, I, I was uh, the product of a, a broken home and also moving schools continually. And, um, and you become somewhat of a chameleon 
in those circumstances, you know, like starting at a new school on a Wednesday in August. I never started at the beginning of the year or anything. So I kind of felt this um, separateness and the, my escape for me was gigs. Mm. You know, I started, I grew up in Brisbane. I started going to, to shows. I was very tall. There was, this was before uh, photo ID and uh, I was able to get into gigs probably from about the age of 14 or 15. And it wasn't about getting into drink or anything. It was about seeing music. And I felt like I, I found my people. Mm. And then uh, suddenly when I got to university and, uh, you know, met my friends who are still lifelong friends, um, you know, a lot of whom played in bands or we lived in share houses. And it was kind of that community, really, that I, I loved and that I felt a part of and included. And, you know, certainly for me, I don't think there was a definitive point where I switched from I was wanted to be a journalist. And then the side hustle was working in a venue where there were gigs on I was really good at it. Yeah. And um, it just, yeah, it became that moment of like, you know what, I think I've got something here that's special. And there's nothing like being in a live venue with a band, with an audience mm. that are collectively having a shared experience. And a lot of that time, it's joyful, yeah. you know, and I, I love feeding off that energy. But also to, you know, the thing for me collectively behind the scenes is the, you know, my comrades that I work with, that I've, you know, built lifelong mm. friendships with and, you know, who bring so much to the table and they're all from different backgrounds. But one of the things I've really come to learn over the years that most people in the, in the arts have, in my experience, a, a level of not just creativity, but empathy, mm. you know, for whether it's the environment, for cultural issues, for women, Etc. that, you know, in, in the sphere that I work in, you know, there's a lot of people that are, are very like-minded, which can be quite confronting when you find people that aren't. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, for me, it's the community within which in I work that, um, you know, I find it joyful. So there must have been a big lack for you through that long period where there was no performance. <laughs> so, I mean, it was diabolical for you professionally, obviously, because you couldn't really do your job, but also just as a consumer, someone who gets joy out of being in that, in that shared moment of seeing music, it just stopped. How, how did you cope with that? Well, it was such a strange uh, experience, particularly because we, uh, you know, I worked for a Frontier Touring. We had numerous tours that were about to happen and they just got shut down. I had one artist that was in New York and uh, rang me on the 13th of March from the airport saying, should I hop on the plane? I had to, you know, tell them to stay there. But we've experienced, you know, as a business, I'm just talking live music, various things over the years where there might be a flood and a show is cancelled or a bushfire or an artist is sick or a truck breaks down. But they're kind of, you know, just little dots on this was everything mm. all at once mm. and we'd never experienced anything like that as you know none of us really had but um what became really challenging was that the challenging part was having the hope that things were going to come back to normal soon mm. so we'd be working and rescheduling you put that energy and love into it and then you'd have to reschedule again and i've got tours that are happening at the moment they've been res rescheduled three four times mm. and the enthusiasm that you try to maintain becomes difficult, you know, particularly for all of my colleagues, etc., and the bands themselves. You know, they don't get yeah. that opportunity to perform. And from an audience perspective, you know, once you remove those things, there's that kind of void, really, mm. is what I really felt, a void. Totally. And I don't think I realised until it was gone how much I loved it and how, how integrated it was in my life. And we'll talk a bit more about the pandemic and the impact on the arts and what we learnt and, and, and so on. I want to come, Jill, though, to this issue that one of the themes of tonight's discussion about art and mental health and how it can help with our mental health. I was reading during the week that psychiatrists in Brussels have been offering patients museum prescriptions, a free visit with a few friends or family members to discover one of Brussels' cultural institutions because it helps with mental health. Apparently there was something similar in Canada as well. 
This is a kind of area that you're working in, art and mental health. Are the mental health benefits of arts and culture starting to become more widely accepted and appreciated? Yeah, I think that idea of arts on prescription is quite a popular one that's taking hold. But I think that's really, you know, just the surface. It's great. But, you know, if you're going to the doctor and you're getting your prescription and you're fronting up at the gallery, you know, you, you're sort of doing okay mm. and it might make you feel better. But what about people who are at home in bed that can't get out of bed? And, you know, one of the big problems, you hear all these stats from the, the mental health industry that, um, you know, the overwhelming majority who are apparently in need of help aren't finding formal help. You know, that's... That's an issue, and most of the people who suicide in Australia haven't reached out for formal help. So how do you connect with those people? So what that suggests is that we, from the side of the arts, need to think about our audiences in a, a different way, and I think this is really the huge opportunity. So there was also a, a Productivity Commission report in 2020 that criticised our mental health system for being too clinically focused, right? Mm. And we, we just don't have the community supports. So it's very not... Related, a, very dependent on drugs too. Very dependent on drugs and a, a biomedical model. Now, fine as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far at all. Mm. So I think there's a real chance here to think about a culturally-led mm. approach. And, and that's really exciting because it goes beyond what we do currently in, in art galleries and, and suggests that there are all sorts of ways of working with communities in this really bottom-up way to develop supports that are not only effective, we know they're effective because there are a lot of studies already, but the radical thing is they could be awesome and they could be the kind of thing that you actually want to be doing. So they're not going to feel like a medical treatment and that would be really revolutionary. Uh, Kelly, does that resonate with you? Do you see what you're doing as a creative arts practitioner in, in that light? Absolutely. And I, I think you've hit the nail on your head when you say it doesn't feel like therapy because if there's one thing that disabled people don't want... It's more therapy, right? It's another appointment. It's another thing that you've got to remember to do. And you, got, you know, but the, I think the benefit of of it is that it doesn't feel like that. It just feels like people with a shared experience who choose to view their disabilities culture. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. Some of us, are very, myself included, are very strong at that point, and others, you know, don't view themselves as disabled at all. But we have shared experiences that enable us to share these amazing stories and. In some ways, I think it was Wesley that said the actual finished product is not what matters. What I wish people could really see is what happens behind the scenes where you have, you know, we've realised that the uh, we had uh, our debut production last year, in December last year, and right before the show, of course, one of our performers' wheelchair breaks down and everybody just gets in behind and starts pushing this chair. And, you know, we've got um, blind people, you know, being offered help with sighted guiding if they can't find their way around the stage. That, to me is what really builds community. It's not really the product of the art, it's the process of making it. What really interests me a lot more in some ways is the questions I get to ask people to, to help them shape their stories and tell their stories. Because some of the things that they come out with are just incredible. Like I had one participant recently, we were working on a show called Places, Faces and Memories, about memories. And, um, you know, she's on quite a lot of medication, she's got some mental health issues. She starts off saying, I don't have any memories. So then I realise I have to rephrase my questioning. And again, that, that's on me as the practitioner, as the tutor, to do that, to find that way to communicate with people. It, it, to me, that's what's really fulfilling because, and I think especially working as I do with a lot of neurodivergent children, I see them and they, they come to us and say things like, and we don't prompt this, we're just filming them, we're just talking to them. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, you know, more than school, more than home, this is where I feel safe and understood because nobody's telling me to sit still and stop stimming. Nobody's telling me to communicate a certain way. It's all valuable and it's all a story in it somewhere. You know, one of my big challenges in terms of disability policy is trying to get people away from this terminology of challenging behaviour where somebody might act out towards viewing that as communicative behaviour and what are they trying to communicate. So, yeah, I think I absolutely agree with 
everything that's been said. Having said that, though, I do think that there are times maybe when, <laughs> when I know I've been prescribed art, not by a practitioner, but by friends and mentors, where I maybe, maybe did need a bit more of a formal referral somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I, th I think, I think we know, you know, we have to strike a, a balance between kind of over romanticizing that idea of the struggling, depressed, you know, yeah. artist. And that's what it means to be a real artist because and this has only occurred to me in the last few years, but you're allowed to be happy as an artist. Mm. That was like, well, oh, oh, mm. somebody told me that when I was 15, <laughs> you know? But, 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 um, but by the same token, we want our art to not only make us, I suppose, feel better and mentally healthier, but we want our art to sometimes at least challenge us and make us feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and I was just on holidays for the, for the past week, Wesley, and... Um, my holiday reading included an incredible book about the first Jew to escape from Auschwitz. It is an incredible book, but it's almost nobody's idea of holiday reading except <laughs> mine. But yeah, that point about, about art distressing us, making us feel uncomfortable. It is important that art is not always an escape yeah. from life, isn't it? Agreed. And I think that it just... In your brain, there's that whole thing about the mirror neuron, the, the notion that as a child, you'll watch a parent and you watch their behaviour and you'll copy it. And it fires off in your head. The copying of that behaviour fires off the same thing as if you were doing it yourself. So if you're listening to an incredible lyric in a song, if you're watching an actor on stage, if you're getting, uh, watching an aria or experiencing music in a way, it actually fires off the same kind of neurons in your brain. So by going to challenging things, to go watch Medea, where she kills her kids and kind of <laughs> acts revenge, means that you don't have to do it yourself. You, know? yeah. you can use, in this case, a theatre story to stretch your own sense of humanity. Mm. And I think that that's a really important thing. I, I, for me, I think that all art sits on a tripod of skills, this idea of an aesthetic be it, you know, ugly or beautiful, and then a narrative and a story behind it that you either make or comes from the work itself. So you want to see skilled behaviours in front of you. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we can talk about participation, we can talk about community, but also we want to see, I, I often will say, you don't ask Kathy Freeman to run slowly. Mm. You want her to be an incredible athlete. Well, we did. That's maybe a very old cultural <laughs> reference now. But this, this notion of, you don't want Ash Barty not to win. There yeah. we go, that's better. Oh, no, she's, that's oh, out anyway. Anyway, but this, uh, this idea of going... Sporting you, analogies are always Yeah, it's always yeah. tricky. But this idea of you do want to see excellence, you do want to see an incredibly skilled artist going further than you could do in your own backyard. And you also then want to see an aesthetic at work, which could be quite a challenging aesthetic. Yeah. That you go, I hate that. I really hate it. And that's actually the intention of the artist half the time. Mm -hmm. And then the narrative that you bring to that, whether you bring it because it's your lived experience, you have a connection to it, you're hearing a story you haven't heard before, or it's turning on light bulbs in your head mm. that takes you somewhere else. And I think for art to be successful, it needs to balance all three all the time mm. and create a, a constant invitation to the audience mm. to be part of the making of that experience together. So, so, Jill, reconciling then the role of art as being challenging, making us feel uncomfortable, sometimes distressing us, and art playing a role in making us healthier, how does that work? Well, uh, <laughs> we do that all the time. I mean, I think... Uh, Practically all the projects I work with are, are now on, you know, we've just finished one on living with borderline personality diagnosis and, and there's another one on self-harm and there's others on suicide. And in a way, I think if you touch the depth of that experience, that's something incredible, right? Yeah. It, that, there's a point of resonance there. And then if you can take people somewhere, I mean, it's not, it's not flat out, you know, kind of relentless trauma because that gets us nowhere. It's, it's the journey and the process. And, and that's how art does have these therapeutic or, or say, you know, the psychosocial benefits because it enables you to do some processing of a really complex experience and it often will leave you in a far better place or it will take you somewhere, show you how to get somewhere. Mm. Sahara, there was the comment made earlier about suffering for your art, that uh, <laughs> sometimes there's this notion that artists need to suffer 
Uh, I don't know about that, but one of the things I noticed lately, I noticed that uh, the British singer Arlo Parks, who toured Australia recently, uh, and who won the Mercury Prize and, uh, and the Brit Award, whose debut album actually touches on depression and anxiety and so on. She's just cancelled her concert tour, saying that her mental health has deteriorated to a debilitating place. Uh, Sam Fender, too, has, I think, called off a tour. These are young artists in their 20s on, sure the, on the way up. Yeah. Is this telling us something about the toll that performing and touring is taking on artists? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I look after an artist called uh, Sean Mendez, who's a young Canadian, um, very successful, and uh, we were due to be touring him shortly. And um, a week or so before we announced the tour, you know, he basically cancelled worldwide. He was mid-tour in North America. He'd taken a bit of a break. And, you know, I think the pressure of being on the road, it's isolating, you know. It's kind of romanticised, you know, rock and roll on the road. But, you know, you've seen the inside of venues hotels, airports, etc. you're having to put it on every night. And you also, you know, you're removed from your family and friends, you, you know, your base and infrastructure. And it's be becoming more and more apparent, I think particularly after COVID and lockdowns and where people have been at home and they've got to experience uh, a different lifestyle, mm. you know, they've gone, hmm, hang on, this isn't working for me anymore to be... You know, and these are young artists, as you said, that are just going, this isn't, isn't working, you know, and they've been brave enough to make that choice and to reach out for help, which in years gone past, uh, I hate to say, I think people didn't feel comfortable about raising their hand and saying that they were struggling in those situations because this, there's this glorification that, you know, you should be lucky, you're lucky to be where you are, you should be appreciative of the adoration or the record sales or whatever. But... Um, I'm not an artist. Uh, my skills lie elsewhere. But I can imagine, you know, I, I work with a lot of creative people and, you know, particularly when you're, say, touring and you're doing five or six shows a week and you're having to get up in front of people and be on, you know, and yeah. there's so much scrutiny. And give it your all. And, you know, I, I work with, uh, you know, lots of really professional, successful, skilled, talented people but the demands on them to, and they're carrying a, an economic ecosystem around them as well. You know, you've got a young star that suddenly is successful and he's got everyone around him from, you know, that are basically working for them. Mm. It's a big decision to say, hey, I'm not doing it anymore because it's shutting down everyone else's livelihood as well. Well, yeah, with, with Arlo, I mean, her album is about vulnerability. That's what makes it such a beautiful record. But you do wonder the toll it takes performing vulnerable songs night after night. Wesley, this is often the case with, with theatre. Some actors and performers have to plumb the very depths mm. to put the performance out there. And as someone in the audience, you look at some of these performances and you think, you know, I've just been moved to the point of being speechless and I've seen one night. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. how much do actors suffer in yeah. that respect. Well, for it's art. interesting because I work with a lot of First Nations um, performers too, so that sometimes we're attracted to the most dramatic material, you know, the story that needs to be told that hasn't been told, and that these actors, it's their lived experience off stage that they're actually playing through character on stage. And you do have to have a resilience in yourself to go, actually, I can separate this experience from my life. And, and I remember working on a show called Stolen uh, a few years ago about stolen generations, and that every cast member uh, actually had a lived experience of being taken away from their family. And I remember that, and audiences would come, and I remember one, um, one season in Sydney where we had five, we called the ambulance five times, because audience members literally had heart murmurs or heart attacks or things like that, where the sure. just telling the story, and I was talking to an elder about this saying, well, you're actually telling heartbreaking stories. Mm. That's why you're breaking their hearts. And we took that back to the actors to go, what does it mean for you to be telling the story? And they say, we can't go there because we can't come back from it. You've got to, as a performer, be able to hold yourself, hold yourself strong to say that the greater good is to tell the story to others. Mm. And I think for First Nations people that we're coming into this whole idea now, of the voice, truth telling uh, and treaty, and that we'll be asked again to tell our stories yeah. 
to a, a, a very eager, I hope, a very open audience, and that we will have to relive traumas, intergenerational traumas, to make the change that we want to make. Mm. Um, I had this one conversation at a dinner where they were saying, oh, yeah, you have to, you have to dramatise your storytelling. You have to tell the story to, to us to convince us to vote for The Voice. And I was going, really? We have to go through that process again after decades and decades and decades of doing this? And he said, that's the only way you can change hearts and minds if you're prepared to go to those places to convince uh, uh, what we, in, up here we say, uh, uh, an ear that's full, an ear that won't hear. And we have to tell these big dramatic narratives because that's the only way to make a change. And I, I think that like the, the same-sex marriage plebiscite, that when we come up to a referendum around the voice, the psychological damage mm -hmm. that's going to occur in this country because people will start to maybe distance themselves from the truth and the narratives of the past, and the no campaign will be about disallowing voice, mm -hmm. and we will have to go into more and more dramatic detail mm -hmm. when we've been actually trying to protect ourselves of that. And just recently, you know, Rachel Perkins and, the, um, and that sense of documentary, The Australian Wars, yes. you're going, okay, you have to gird your loins to go see that story because yeah. you know that that's what she's saying is here's the architecture of our disassembling of an Aboriginal culture in this country and the attacks on it, and we have to relive that again and again and again. So the telling of art comes at a price. Mm. The telling of story has a cost. And I think that the, the uh, and this audience, yeah. I think, would be a very sympathetic audience. But there are audiences out there that we shouldn't have to be the ones telling the story over and over again. Let's empower all of Australia to tell that narrative. Yeah. So it, it, it saves us. Well, the Firestarter, the documentary on Bangara, yeah. shows the price that's paid for creating magnificent art, doesn't it? And yeah. well, it actually shows more than that. It's a fantastic documentary. You really should see it, but well, touches uh, on that as well. And this is interesting because I remember um, having an argument with the, one of the directors of that documentary saying, you cannot leave us in a dark, empty yeah. place. You have to give us hope. You have to show us where we're going because First Nations people are going to watch this documentary and we will need something to hold on to at the other end of it. It does too, I think. It does. Well, yeah. one of the first uh, rushes when we, we were watching it, where there was, it's quite, it was, I remember sobbing yes. in, in the cinema, absolutely wailing and saying, take us from here to somewhere else. Mm. And, you know, this is a great criticism of First Nations theatre, that it is hopeful, that it actually takes us somewhere and lifts us up at the end. And I go, that's because we're, we know that First Nations audiences are going to come and watch this. Mm. And we have a responsibility to our community to keep us alive. Okay. Jill, can you tell us about so much work you're doing in this area of, of um, art and, and mental health, it's hard to know where to start, but tell us about the big anxiety festival that you've been uh, behind and, and running and what, what that's all about and what that's been achieving. Yeah, so we, uh, we, we founded the Big Anxiety in Sydney back in 2017 and it was really a, a kind of a sort of a strategic idea. We, we would as many people are doing all of this work at the crossover of arts and health, but it's very difficult to do at any scale and with any impact because there's not funding there. So we thought we need to create a platform for doing this. And we got really excited about the idea of, um, we had this tagline from the start, which is uh, people plus art plus science. So we wanted to kind of like flip the hierarchy and we wanted it to be people led. And I think that's, that's the key thing, yeah. that it's not just arts and, you know, a bit of science around mental health. It's going to communities, working with communities and finding a new way to generate work. And so it's, it's been quite exploratory in mm. that way. And so we, we ran it again in Sydney. And uh, this year, in fact, we were in Queensland, so Brisbane in May, but also in, in smaller towns. We've been doing a lot of work in Warwick, which has been amazing. Uh, and that's, that's one of our really great case studies where we're working with 
local community and and this is a place where people have said you know we we don't have the services that we need really significant youth suicide problem mm. in the indigenous community in particular and you know it comes back to this thing about listening as well people saying you know kids are dying go to the hospital for help don't get it, and then there are no answers. No one is even hearing what's going on. So what do you do about that? I mean, everything has to be redesigned, and, and this is a creative project, right? What do, you, what do you put in place? You have to step in, not with an answer, because we don't have one, mm -hmm. but just quiet, effective facilitation, which is fundamentally about holding a space for listening. Mm -hmm. And then putting in place, yeah, some of the things that will support that ongoingly. Yeah, I think art creates empathy too, Kelly. And I, I wonder, you mentioned before about the True Ability Theatre Company that you helped to establish. You're a disability advocate and have been deeply involved in theatre. How does theatre and performance help to break down some of the barriers that people with a disability face? And how does it allow them to perhaps tell their stories and present their experiences to others? I think one of the things that I love watching when I watch one of our shows is watching people realise that disabled people can be funny, right? Because a lot, a lot of the time we'll be telling, you know, some, some really kind of harrowing stuff about times in our lives when we've left without support or when we haven't been listened to, but we... A lot of our cast members are extraordinarily funny and witty and just have fantastic timing and are able to turn them on into these stories where you do that kind of uncomfortable laugh where you go, ha, ha, oh. You know, and, and that is, is probably the best part of my job, apart from throwing microphones everywhere, um, is watching people realise that whether it's people with disabilities, First Nations people, whatever, a holistic, three-dimensional, four-dimensional human beings, you know, that have multiple stories to us. And I think one of the more important things about our work is almost telling stories that are not about disability. And obviously often we will, sometimes it's relevant, but a lot of the time it's not. And I, I think that is what drives understanding and empathy for our experience, is helping us to be viewed as holistic and, and more than our disabilities, mm. while still being able to embrace that as identity and culture if we choose. And I think as well, the empathy really, like the empathy I think comes naturally because we have that shared experience of disenfranchisement that, that helps us sometimes to think about, oh, well, yeah, obviously, what about Lucy? She's blind, I might need to offer her a hand with this. But I also think one of the biggest things that helps drive empathy is that <laughs> I'm incredibly harsh on our actors a lot of the time. Mm. And the reason I do that is because there's a lot of other, you know, opportunities that they'll get artistically where it's sort of pat you on the head, good job for getting out of bed today. Whereas I want to change the world with you and I want to help create the world that you deserve. And to do that, we need people to see you being absolutely amazing. Mm. And it's not pushing them beyond anything that they're not capable of. It's just pushing them to hopefully see themselves as, as we see them, as, as directors and tutors. And I think that's what drives the empathy as opposed to sympathy, as like, oh, he's an incredibly funny, smart human being, and I've been wrong. You know, one of the favourite reviews I've ever read of one of our productions was this guy who came on and, and the, the piece started with a, with a dance routine. And, you know, we all came out on stage and he actually to his credit, was completely honest. I wasn't expecting much, and this dance was really weird, and their bodies moved differently to what I was expecting. I wasn't expecting much, but I was wrong. It was, it was great. Mm. That, to me, I don't think there's much we can do as disabled people to change people's minds. We have to just keep existing and affording each other those opportunities to be, to be proud of ourselves and each other. Mm. I think that's what drives the empathy of an understanding of our experience. I mean, Sahara, we're, we're all self-evidently fans of the arts on, on this panel. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> but the pandemic was a sobering 
realisation that the views that we have about the importance of arts in our society were not necessarily shared by everybody. I mean, as we know, there was one sector that was conspicuously less generously treated during the pandemic, and it was the arts sector. What, what do you think that that told us about the place of the arts? I mean, you can speak from your role in the music industry. I mean, what was your response to how you were treated during the pandemic? Oh, it was incredibly disappointing, disheartening, infuriating, and you know, particularly and comparatively when you could see that other industries, mm. such as sport, were able to you know, hold mass gatherings of you know, 50,000 people. I couldn't put on a gig for 250. And there just seemed to be different rules for you know, different industries, which, were, which didn't correlate, they didn't make sense. Mm. Um, and particularly, you know, we, we had long and heated discussions around gambling actually, you know, which, you know, we kind of came to understand that was a, seemed to be a lot of the motivation around particularly having sport. But, you know, it's a well-known fact that, um, you know, arts contributes way more to the economy and, um, you know, to the well-being of the community than what sport does as well. But we, we were left high, high and dry. It took a really long time for there to be any tangible support for the arts and it was different in each state you know I'm incredibly relieved we now on the federal level have government in place that actually supports the arts and believes in the arts and it was listens. hard for artists too wasn't it you were Horrendous. telling me that support act the body that assists artists in trouble yeah it, it was it was inundated, really inundated. inundated. So um, Support Act, if you, for people who don't know, is a, a music industry charity that uh, does incredible work within uh, the industry. They also have a another associated uh, charity called Crew Care, and they were inundated with requests for uh, financial help, but also around mental health, anxiety, depression, drugs and alcohol, which are quite often interwoven with anxiety and depression um, because, you know, a lot of these people had, had their income instantly removed. And, you know, the phrase gig economy mm. comes from the music industry, totally. obviously. And, you know, we're talking about particularly artists, crew, etc., that may not have, you know, the steady income and resources that, that might come if you work in uh, an established business. So they might not have long-term savings, superannuation, healthcare, etc., that other industries would have. One of the things that Support Act were really integral in doing was starting to do financial training mm -hmm. uh, with artists and with crew because um, so many of them didn't kind of have that background and they didn't have savings that could see them through an extended period of not working. Yeah. But look, I, I suppose the point here is there's a good story to tell about the arts. And it's not just a story about the contribution of arts to the economy. It's much bigger than that, as we've been talking about tonight. Uh, Wesley, has there been a failure of advocacy on the part of the arts? Is, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to single the arts industry out, but how, how are we to explain the fact that the arts were neglected during this time when funding was really needed? I, I think that the arts are a site of progressive thought. And there are other sites of progressive thought, so public broadcasting and journalism as a whole. Uh, science is a site of progressive thought, universities. And we can see over the last, let's call it 10 years, but maybe it's even longer than that, those sites of progressive thought have slowly been kind of either squeezed or pushed or questioned or chilled through certain, mm. certain behaviours. And I think that that's, that's to the detriment of the national character, yeah. you know, that we that we can be a rambunctious and robust uh, society. We can kind of question things. And the arts are at the forefront. They're questioning things. I mean, I, I think back to Midnight Oil and you go, oh, my God. Remember in the 80s <laughs> where we all just go, they're saying what we want to say mm. uh, uh, about, you know, uh, against kind of extractive industries and things. And now we see them very much as um, in the forefront of the kind of climate change conversation because artists are ahead of the public debate often. And so for me, I think that those sites of progressive thought, the arts, science, I mean, if it wasn't for the pandemic, the CSIRO and science would have still been kind of under the thumb, uh, public broadcasting, journalism and universities. 
we need to kind of think about those sites of progressive thought as in, intrinsic into the Australian character. Mm. And I think that that's a big thing too. I, I think that what, the problem with the arts is we're crabs in a bucket. We just want to keep pulling each other down. We want to build up a competition. We Even tonight, we've been building a competition with sport because we think about art-sport dichotomy. Yeah. That doesn't serve anyone. I mean, I think that what we need to do is go, again, the culture of the nation is one where sport and art go hand in hand. Well, that's right. It is a false dichotomy. The people who are going to look at the grand final on Saturday are also attending art galleries Absolutely. and performances. And yeah. the performers who go up on stage are the ones who are all barracking for whatever football club they need to barrack for now. <laughs> but, but this notion of saying that we, we, as artists, want to fly in the face of the national character by building these dichotomies is the crab in the bucket thing, mm. where when you start to squeeze... Uh, resources or attention, we start to fight amongst ourselves rather than go, what is the thing that we need to fight for, generally speaking? Yeah. And, and I think that one of my roles as, as, uh, as an arts advocate is not just to promote my own shows, though, you know, Wesley Enoch, see yeah. the work, <laughs> but the notion of going, how do we keep talking about the bigger cultural project in the 70s, yeah. we had a very clear cultural project, which was about national identity. In the 80s and 90s, it became an almost economic discussion. Mm. And what is the discussion that's going to take us into the 21st century? I don't think we found it yet. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Earlier in the year, I read that the new German arts minister had significantly increased arts funding yeah. with a focus on climate change and colonialism. And she drew a link between the arts promoting democracy and countering right-wing extremism, which is obviously a big problem in Germany. Jill, you're talking about arts and its contribution to mental health at a time when many of our mental health interventions are not terribly successful, actually. Do you think this is a way in which starting to broaden the discussion about what arts contributes to society, that we can get more demonstrable support from the people that matter at, at government level, perhaps. Yeah, hopefully. But, uh, I mean, I agree. It's the great thing about the arts is that we can be progressive and radical, and that's what we need to be in, in mental health as well. I mean, uh, you know, there is a dearth of, you know, available uh, resources for, for mental health support. So we need to... We need to go out with a radically new agenda. We need to uh, look at things like trauma that, you know, the medical model doesn't serve. We need to, you know, who knows anything about inherited trauma apart from people who have experienced it. You know, medicine gives us nothing in, in that regard. So this is a cultural project that we really need to be out there promoting. And we, we can be at the, in the vanguard of this in, in a way that no other sector really is. And that's not an exaggeration because we have the sort of techniques for working with people, but also the capacity to effect this paradigm shift and really change thinking yep. in imaginative ways. I'm going to come to you, Kelly. I just wanted to say we, we, we're getting lots and lots of comments coming through and links to uh, various works from, from our panellists and so on. No specific questions, so I'm just charging ahead nonetheless. But Kelly, you were going to respond, I think, to something that Jill was saying there. I was. Let's see if I can remember what it was. <laughs> My ADHD is starting to show. I think part of this conversation, too, needs to be addressing this idea that when we fund arts, we're purely funding arts for art's sake. So we're only, that only benefits people who go to galleries and see plays and enjoy art. That is not true. For heaven's sake, we've talked extensively about the mental health benefit. If, if art could be put in a capsule and sold by pharmaceutical companies, I'm convinced it would be flying off the shelves. It lowers cortisol, you know, it, it improves memory, academic performance and attendance. But for some reason, we have this conversation that when we talk about funding art, oh, it's just for artists, it's just those people over there. Well, no, because I think we need to, in order to enshrine the value of art in our society. We need to have an honest conversation about what art is. Every time I watch Bob's Burgers, an artist made that show. Every time we go to the football, some artist somewhere has designed those uniforms, has designed those posters that advertise that, that event when it goes. So, you know, I think, I think it's about what is art. It's everywhere. It's benefiting all of us. And, you know, we need to get out of this kind of silo mentality around where our taxes go and things, because... I'm not a firefighter, but I happily fund the CFS. 
I'm not, I don't have children yet, maybe, who knows, tick, tick, it's fine. <laughs> um, but, but uh, you know, I recognise that children are human beings that need to grow up, have education. So I think we need to address the fact, and it is a fact, that art benefits society as a whole, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, economically. So, you know, addressing this silo mentality, I think, is a really important yeah. part of it. Enshrining that now. Yeah, but I think the funding is not the only question here. Any kind of yeah. enabling policies, enabling procedures, you know, things that the red tape, I think that often when we talk about arts, we think of the funded structures, mm. when in fact I think the commercial structures are just as important mm. and that we need to kind of keep this always in balance, as I think we're saying there, Kelly, the, the idea of going how the arts work as a whole mm. and that the, that whole ecological conversation is very important. Well, we've got a Prime Minister now, Sahara, who goes to rock and roll gigs. <laughs> So, like, what, what, a couple of weeks after he gets voted in, he was at the Gang of Youths yeah, gig in Sydney. I was yeah. with him uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, at a Midnight Oil uh, event for Support Act. And, uh, and he, it's genuine too, isn't oh, it? It's absolutely. Not, he's, not, he's not putting he's been it on. Doing it long, he's been doing that a very long time. He's uh, an, an active gig goer. He, he loves it, you mm. know. Um, Do we think that this will... And he's a great supporter of Aussie music too, Australian so, music. So will this translate into a changed approach absolutely. to the arts? From, yeah. I, I have no doubt about that. And we can see that kind of effect already. You know, he's, he and, uh, you know, Tony Burke are instigating, you know, various different meetings that will be basically leading to new policy around, you know, I mean, we've actually got an arts minister again. I mean, I mean it seems, you know, ridiculous that we got to a point where there wasn't. But there's, a, you know, a definite shift. And, you know, the thing that has really changed in the industry there's hope, you know, there's a sense of hope again because we have felt, you know, uh, a bit adrift and at sea. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, when things go wrong as a community, when there's, a, you know, a bushfire, a flood, etc., it's the arts community that get called upon to, you know, to help with fundraising, but to also bring hope back to communities, putting on concerts, etc., holding gatherings where, you know, art mm. is central to bringing, uh, you know, hope and community together. But, you know, I guess that was the sad irony. When we needed help, it wasn't really there. But the yeah. change in government has been... Uh, brought a significant uh, change in the mood within the industry because do, do we, you, we've got people that actually believe in the arts again. Wesley, do you think? Do you think so? Uh, I just noticed a, 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 just an edge of scepticism come across your face when <laughs> there, there, was there was a, a question that just came through, which saying, "What is art saving us from?" <laughs> and I kind of went, "Yeah, what is it saving us from?" And I think it is the abyss of lack of hope. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, um, I love to quote Chelsea Wadigo here, where, but I won't use the swear word. But you know, she says, "Hope is this kind of panacea that stops action from occurring sometimes, and that that hope needs to be the fuel." that makes change possible. I've been talking to Kelly Vincent, a writer, creative director and advocate. She's co-founder of Trueability, a disabled person's theatre company. Jill Bennett, Scientia Professor at the University of New South Wales, researcher and director of the Big Anxiety Festival. Sahara Herald, tour director with Frontier Touring and Wesley Enoch, playwright and artistic director. That discussion was part of the Goma Talks series Thanks to the Gallery of Modern Art for their assistance. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.